I think I enjoy painting because it gives me moments of peace. I wholeheartedly believe without my faith, I wouldn't be standing here today. My name is Mary Beth Feist, and I have two beautiful children with my husband, Mitch. Butterflies have a special meaning to me because of their transformation, almost like they're born again. When I was young, I just never really had a relationship with God. I didn't know how to. The way I viewed God was that he was just kind of a bystander, just looking down on all of us. We didn't think that we would have children. And then about six months later, we became pregnant with Rory. When she was born, she was just the light of my world. Things that were unhealed felt like maybe I could heal because I had this precious child. It opened my eyes to a new sense of wonder again. Maybe it was lost along the way. You know, that time and my life was so precious to me. So we were vacationing in Florida and Rory collapsed on the playground. They found a very large tumor on the right atrium of her heart. They tried to remove as much of the tumor as they could, but it was embedded in her heart and they deemed it a malignant tumor and she was to start chemo just a few weeks later. But she never was quite the same. And then she slipped into a coma, and five weeks later, she passed away at the age of three. From the time that she was diagnosed until her passing, it was two months' time. When Rory went into the hospital, it was probably the first time I had prayed in about 20 years. And I didn't even know how. Of course, I prayed for her safety and I prayed for, you know, a miracle. I thought of everything I had ever done that was bad and thought, this is it, this is my punishment. I prayed for myself, which sounds really selfish. I prayed for my husband because no matter what was about to happen, all I could think about was that I needed to change. Shortly after Rory passed, 
I wanted to have a relationship with God. I just opened my Bible and started reading. I went to church every single Sunday. Attending Impact, I felt like these were just real people, actual people that wanted to be better. Once I became aware of what a life with Jesus was like, I felt much lighter in my grief. I felt like with Jesus, I could bear this pain. I was not forsaken. He's still going to make this right. He makes everything right. On the days that I long for her, I believe that he will. If you had the opportunity to meet her, you would just know. She truly was a gift from God. You know, nothing that we say or do is more powerful than God. It can sometimes be easier just to stuff it down, never to, to face it or address it. But there may come a time where you have to, you're forced to, and it's okay. It's okay to say, I was wrong. I was wrong about Jesus. Life with him is so much better. <laughs>
but just hearing your story through Ryan and, and just what you guys have been through, I, I can't even imagine. I think it, it would be safe to say that's like people's worst nightmare in this room and, and I just hope we can honor Rory's life today with you. We just feel the weight of that with you. I just, I can't believe that that was the, the impetus to bring you to our church, that what came out of that moment of grief in the fork in the road wasn't to just leave God, but to just press toward God and say, I need change and to come to this place and sort of maybe experience a refreshing picture of God and his love for you guys and your family. I'm so glad you live in Lowell. I don't know where you live, but wherever your house is, it's overlooking like mountains and they don't exist around here, but I'm not sure where that is, but that is, that's impressive. Man, the, just the vulnerability and the authenticity and the transparency, that's what we value around here. You can see it on the word wall coming in and it just moved, moved my heart. And not praying for 20 years, like our mission is for people that have been far from God to feel like it's possible that God might be approachable and accessible for the first time in their life. And if that's you today and you're coming for the first time, I want you to know there's a lot of Marys in here. There's a lot of people that um, just come from all kinds of backgrounds and they're just giving God a shot today. They're investigating the claims of Christ and Christianity. In fact, you're looking at me right now and you're sizing me up and you're wondering if I'm just one of those pastors that's like a snake handler and I'm just gonna be up here and do something crazy and am I genuine, authentic? And I don't blame you, I'd be doing the same thing. So have at it. The church deserves to be scrutinized. The church deserves to be sort of looked at with suspicion because of the things that we have done. In fact, as I knew about Mary's story and some of her background, some of that vision of God was this bystander in the sky looking down on us. And then that one part where she thought maybe even the death of Rory was because she had done so many things in her life and it was a punishment for her sin, sort of like the sins of the fathers visit the children to the third and fourth generation. Anybody ever been scared about that? And it just, it petrifies you in place. It terrifies you. And I was thinking in that, that video, those perspectives that we have on God and this punishing distant deity in the sky, this, this ogre, this killjoy, this one that loves to poop on the party of life, right? This God, who if we're having fun, it's probably sin, and if we're sinning, it's probably fun, right? It's like food, if it tastes good, it's probably fattening, if it's fattening, it probably tastes good. That's how much God has wired life to screw us over. Like some of you really believe he's held out on you, that he's holding back on you, that he loves it when you're in misery, and I just wanna climb into that perspective. A.W. Tozer, who's a pastor in Canada, one of my favorite authors in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, speaks a quote that makes sense to me. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a powerful statement to make from an intellectual authority in theology. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because your view of God becomes your interpretation of life. Your way of seeing becomes your way of being or your state of being in life. 
There's a lot at stake. I, I was thinking through what, what are my mental images of God from growing up and even to this day, I can't expunge them from my mind, but there's this idea that he's an old grandpa in the sky and he's either on a throne or on a cloud and he's sort of got a salt and pepper beard and he doesn't have any sort of equipment to shave it or to, to take care of it. So it's disheveled, but he's up there and he's in the sky and he's reaching down and he's got a lot of plump like chair you know, adolescent angels around him all the time. And that is a mental image of God that he's just a muscular sort of character in the sky with a beard sitting on a throne or a cloud looking down on us. Or, or another picture that comes to my mind is sort of the angry God pointing down and just kind of barking out orders at us. And he's sort of pretty ticked off and annoyed by us because we do stupid things all the time and we inconvenience him with our behavior. And he is so ticked off. And you can see it in his eyes. At least I can. And I wonder when I'm praying these mental images, they infect and affect my, my prayer life my life in general. And these things are a big deal because it isn't about your eternal destiny, it's about your quality of life on earth that these things can affect. I remember one of the most popular sermons by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I remember it was back in, I think the 90s, there was this movement that came out to put on billboards just like these things that God was saying and you drive by a billboard and said, don't make me come down there. Remember seeing these all over the time? You know, if, if you do that again, I'm gonna make the traffic longer. Like all these things that were out there, you think it's hot down there, you know? I'm serious. These were all the statements. It's blasphemous. You can't put that word in God's mouth. As if God isn't already down here and we're gonna make him come down here. He's been down here. He loves being down here. He's here by his spirit today. He's inhabiting human hearts that have invited him in. He's hovering over this earth. He so loves the world. Newsflash, he made it. He made you. You're his idea. He thinks you're a great idea. He thinks this is a great idea. It's not a failed experiment. He has an idea for redemption. Don't make me come down there and beat you silly. I had this thought come to my mind. It was probably a few years back where there was a day I was just in a cycle of sin and I was just so tired of my attitude and my thoughts. You ever been there and you're like, why does God put up with me? Why does he need to just wipe me out? And I just felt like a fed up, you know, I, I felt like a messed up son of a fed up father. And some of you here, that's your idea. I just am a messed up child of a fed up father. That's my relationship with God in a nutshell. Well, I was thinking about images of Jesus. I actually typed it into Google and the most popular image that comes up of Jesus is his senior picture. <laughs> and uh, where they bring in the backdrop and sort of the lighting and you can see where the lighting was. And you know, if you're into photography, you can see where it's coming in the shadows and all this stuff. And I just look at that and you know, how many of you go into people's houses growing up and this is in a sort of circular thing in houses, you might have it in yours, tear it down, tear it down. It might be meaningful to you. It's killing your children's idea of Jesus. I looked at it last night and a thought came to my mind. I didn't share it. It's like, I don't think I would want to be friends with that person. I'm serious. 
that person just doesn't look like somebody that has a lot of fun it, or talks much. And I don't know if he's looking up or down. He's got a sixth sense. It's sort of this weird thing, like, where are you looking? The next most famous picture, and you've seen this one in houses too, is he's always the gentle shepherd carrying a little lamb around. He never did this in the Bible, but that's what we think he was doing is just walking around the countryside of Galilee and Nazareth and by the, you know, Tiberias and just holding little lambs all day long, preaching to people. Never did this, never did this. This is Jesus. He's asking us to follow him. My question is, are you being Christ-like? And what that means is, do you have sheep? <laughs> See, because whatever your, your Christ is like, that's what being Christ-like looks like. Whatever your God looks like in your head, that's what you think it means to be godly. This is why it actually makes a difference what your thoughts and ideas are about God. There's some new artists that are sort of trying to change Jesus' image. I found this one. He started working out at the YMCA doing pull-ups. He's got lats now and a six-pack. And of course, he's a fisher of men, so he's got to have the fish there. But, and this is what he did all the time is just carry fish around. Um, but he's got his bathrobe on or sheet, whatever that is. The next picture is really awesome. Um, he's still holding babies, um, but, you know, he's swole. And... Uh, He's working out and um, I don't know why the baby has a crown of thorns on too, but there's probably something going on. All these pictures of God, I, I actually wonder if in the 10 commandments when it says there should be no graven images, if something about these images of God that aren't graven images or painted images become a detriment to us, an impediment to how, how we relate to God, not letting him be who he is, but actually fabricating who we think he is and we make him in our image rather than letting him be his own image. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on, he says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. A man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts on God. He goes on to say, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most significant fact of any man is not what he at any given time may or say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul, move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but the corporate company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's profound. I was reading the first page in our devotional. I hope you'll grab one of those. And even if you're like, man, I don't know how to study the Bible, it'll just kind of guide you through and just simple questions to probe into your heart. And it started out this way. The idea of turning the page has been bouncing around in my head for quite some time. I guess it's because I view life through the lens of story. Each of our lives are stories. If I, there was a biographer logging your life and taking notes on the twists and turns of your daily actions and reactions, your life could be turned into a book with every page capturing the chronology of your unfolding narrative. And I'm not saying our lives are worthy of being turned into a book. Mine, of course, not. 
I'm just saying that they could be and the essential nature of a good book is that you're compelled to keep turning the page to find out what happens next. One chapter leads into another and pulls you toward the end of the story. Hopefully, a redemptive ending or a remarkable conclusion that makes it memorable and consequential. But some people and some people's stories get hung up along the way. I call it being story stuck. They stay in a particular chapter for decades, sometimes a lifetime, and the story stoppage can often be traced back to a particular day or, or, or moment, and that's their page, this event or moment that paralyzes progress, and a person can stay trapped in a chapter of their story for the rest of their days, never turning the page, never moving on, never getting over what took them out or, or took them down. And I, I learned that one of the biggest wounds that can happen along the way in someone's life is something called spiritual abuse. That is the way someone gets wounded by the church or their own Christian family, so-called, in their backstory, and has taught or shown some ideology that scars their understanding of spirituality and then shapes their ideas of God himself. So many have encountered cold churches and legalistic leadership or guilt-based teaching or compassionless congregations executing harsh discipline tax tactics or just plain boring and lifeless religion. Or they go home and experience a different parent than the one who attended church with them that day. Hypocrisy and duplicity and, and all this neglect and even abuse in the home cause a veracity of faith itself to be a farce. They get stuck in seeing God, life, and people in a way that is contaminated. I, last night I talked to a guy afterward and he said, it, just, it took me until a couple years ago I had a repressed memory of my dad who was the organist and the song leader that he raped me when I was younger. And I go to church and it was that dad who was a leader and I come home and he raped me. It's taken me years to get free from that kind of bondage. See, people get hung up and, and justly so just leave the church and God altogether. And others are injured and end up somehow perpetuating the same injurious tactics, if you can believe it. It's proven that hurt people can often hurt people. So something has to come into this narrative and bring redemption and healing. We have to be open to turning the page on the pain we've experienced at the hand of flawed faith communities and our so-called Christian families who have stopped our spiritual story dead in its tracks. As I was thinking about this spiritual abuse or just dirty religion might be another way of calling it, what it's done to us over the years. I thought of a passage that talked about this subject in Luke 13, 10 to 17, and we looked at this a little bit in our devotional this week. I wanna extrapolate and sort of unpack this text this morning, starting at verse 10. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. It's a long time. She was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her. Immediately she straightened up and thanked God. Just that, that line crippled by a spirit for 18 years. That, that's why we're doing this series. 
Because I've been in this almost 23 years in ministry and, and just being in the community. I don't have to be in church. I can just go to the YMCA and hear somebody share their horror story, their sob story. And I'm just, my heart is broken over how they've been shattered and wounded and crushed in their lives. And their, their spirit is crippled for so many years, 18, 9, 28, 39 years they're living with some sort of spirit. It could be a spirit of anger. It could be a spirit of abuse. It could be a spirit of, of just coldness or, or a, a spirit of fear that has overtaken them. Certainly the spirit of religion can get in there as well, but it cripples you and you're bound up and constricted and, and paralyzed. God cares about that. We want to see people set free from that sort of affliction or addiction here today in this room. It goes on in verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, which seems like a great thing to do on, on church day, but not then. The synagogue leader, the church leader, the priest or the pastor of the day said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? Don't you love that Jesus isn't a weenie or a wussy? or some wimp, like these pictures of him walking around in, in a bathrobe with a sash and, and a little kid in one arm and a little lamb in the other around his shoulders is not what he did. And he actually went in and stood up to power and fought for the oppressed and what was oppressing them. And he was trying to transform the perpetrator and the victim, the predator and the prey and come in and saying, it's a new day. It's a new day. It's, it's crazy to me that a day that was supposed to be a day to honor God and, and who he was and everything that he was about and his mission had become a day where healing people from their affliction for 18 long years, they'd punched out on that day. Come back tomorrow, we'll punch in, we're back to work tomorrow. People that cared more about laws than lives. People that cared more about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law itself, which was always to free the human heart. Yes. And it's crazy. You look at this, it's like work. There's six days. Not this day. What is that? Chick-fil-A? Is that where they got their motto? You know, there's six days to buy chicken. The seventh day we don't do chicken, you know? Maybe they got that from the Pharisees. I don't know. It's one thing I don't like about Chick-fil-A, even though I honor that value. I want my chicken on that day as well. <laughs> but isn't it crazy that freeing people by ministry leaders was seen as work? That's a mindset. We've punched out. We've clocked out. How could that become work, labor, inconvenience, striving, toil, wouldn't that be the, the cream? Wouldn't that be the bread and butter of what you got into it for? What happens to us? 
And then I, I th- see this idea, he comes at him, he's like, man, you care about your ox and your donkey and you lead it to water when you can sense it's thirsty, shouldn't I not do something similar for this daughter of Eve or any son of Adam that would come up to me? He's, this is the crown of my creation. Why do you care more about animals than humans? And then it hits me, we're in a day and age where there's a, in, sort of a humane society for animals and there's more care about animals nowadays than there are for human beings and it's getting worse. I mean, you get fined and thrown in jail for messing with an eagle egg, but you can take an unborn child and do whatever the heck you want with it. What's our problem? You, you care more about that, that donkey and that jackass. What the heck is your problem? This is a woman. And for 18 long years, she's been afflicted with something that's caused her to hunch over this spirit. We can do something about this. This is our job. If you want to know what your work is, it's the work of ministry and it's freedom. Amen. You hypocrites. When we toss that word around, you hypocrites. That was a play actor. It was a person who put on a mask or covered themselves up and got on a stage and they were a performer. You're just performing. You're a hypocrite. And he used this term with religion, even in Matthew 23. He's like, you hypocrite. You go to people and you preach to them and you tie up heavy loads on their backs and then you don't even lift a finger to help them. If you're going to teach something with conviction and put something on people, you got to get down in the trenches with them and help them work that out but you don't do that. You just drop the message and then you leave and don't lift a finger to help anyone. You hypocrites. You hypocrites, he goes on to say, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter and you don't let anyone enter who wants to. You're the obstruction. You're the impediment. And then he goes on, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make a single convert and then when they become one, they become twice the sons of hell that you are. Aren't you so glad he was a gentle shepherd? I mean, that's that's swearing there. You sons of hell! That's worse than a son of a bitch. I didn't hear any laughter. It is. I'm serious. I I feel like God in his language and his veracity and his passion for people drove him to fight for the souls of people. And you can see what it did for people because you go on in this text and it says in verse 17, and when he said this, all his opponents, not only were they infuriated and indignant, they were humiliated, but the people were delighted at all the wonderful things he was doing. Finally, a rabbi that comes and fights for the people that's not getting in bed with Roman power and the Sanhedrin sort of palling up with with the Romans. No, this guy is fighting for us and the people were drawn by the droves to this man. He didn't tuck his, his robe between his legs and just run. He wasn't scared. He wasn't trying to not offend people. He was fighting for the human heart love that. That's why I started following him. Because I started getting those pictures out of my head and I started reading the Bible and I'm like, I can, I can do that. I can call people sons of hell. I, I can use my mouth to speak out metaphors to try to awaken the human heart and I can try to afflict suffering on, on the people that are, are causing oppression and try to bring out of oppression those who are underneath the affliction 
of those who are causing suffering. I can do something about that. I love what Dana Akiri said. Jesus would publicly call out people in the faith community who are guilty of hurting or violating others. He would, wouldn't sit back in silence. He wouldn't bury the evidence or cover up abuse. In addition, he would never ignore, condemn, or ostracize those who suffered trauma. He would fight to free them, even in the face of power. Thank God. I see the progression of Jesus in this passage. He was just teaching in the synagogue, just like kind of I'm doing right now. And then something changed. He went from teaching a message to living the message. And he didn't see this as an interruption or interference or disturbance to the church service. He actually turned his eyes and saw a person, not just the people. And he saw a person who was underneath an affliction for 18 long years and it moved his hearts and he saw her and he called her forward. He didn't push her backward. He didn't ostracize her. He called her forward in her life. He said and spoke these words into her, you are set free and he put his hands on her. That's what I love about Jesus. He, he was approachable and he, he would just touch people and you know how many people just need people to appropriately touch them. There's so much inappropriate touch by way of violence and sexual abuse. Do you know what it's like to just have someone just touch you and say, hey, be free, I'm, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm in this with you. I don't care about what they think right now. I know your story. I know the 18 long years. You're not an interruption. This is not an inconvenience. You're not a burden to me. This is what I came here for. They're gonna be just fine right now. It's about calling you forward and not just calling you out, but calling you up. And then he advocated for, stood between her and her accusers. And then he used her as an example to inspire others. And Jesus' opponents, just angry, nitpicking, loveless people. There's a story told of Frederick Nietzsche the German philosopher and author of the prolific book, God is Dead. It was written in 1882 and he, he lays out an argument that the enlightenment had eliminated the possibility of the existence of God. It's a very popular book. Interestingly enough, I found out his dad was a Lutheran pastor and as a young man, he sat in the back pew of the church and one day as his dad was preaching, he had this life-defining thought about his father or pastor or spiritual leader that shaped his understanding of God and life. He said this under his breath, does that thing up there even feel? And then he ends up writing a book, God is Dead. Do you see the traceability? That if a father who's a pastor or spiritual leader in different contexts becomes duplicitous or becomes hypocritical, all of a sudden you look at them as an inanimate object. Does that thing, object, even feel, have a pulse? Is it real? It can't be real. And if that's my dad and he's for God, then God is dead because my dad is dead to me. And you might be 
even thinking that today, is that guy up there, does he, that thing, even feel? Does he feel what I'm going through? Does he know what it's like to be in my shoes? Does he feel what it's like to live on this planet with its gravity of depravity? And I'm telling you here, I don't care how I look or how I sound or how I look put together right now or how this may be hitting you or inspiring you or boring you or putting you to sleep. I am a human being that feels the full weight of living the human human condition on this planet. I do care. I do get wrecked. I do feel the suffering. I ache with your pain. I try to advocate for you. I try to have people come in that aren't a part of the group that feel like they're outsiders and they don't fit to say, hey, you don't have to be a person that looks like this or acts like this to fit in. If you can get in, you fit in here. Where's the love in this passage? I just was thinking about religion. The definition comes from the Latin term, term legare, which means to bind, which is great. If you bind a rope together, it makes it stronger, but that same rope can end up binding people up and holding them hostage and sort of imprisoning them and even torturing them in that prison. But religion defined as scrupulousness or conscientious exactness or piety or having religious scruples, religious awe, superstition, strict religious observance. I, th I think of the word scrupulous or conscientious exactness and it's, it's a way of looking at God and you think that he's looking at every little peccadillo of your life and every little thing that you do, every step you make, and he's looking over your shoulder and he, he be sure your sins will find you out. I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna get you. You just take a minute step, any infraction, any sort of transgression, I'm going to pounce on you and punish you for that. Well, then you haven't heard about grace and mercy and long suffering and patience and forgiveness and kindness. Because Jesus, he was that. He was God in the flesh, making known the glory of God among us. Scrupulosity actually is a term in psychology where people come in and they are so vexed by this, it's, they're mentally ill and it's characterized by pathological guilt, moral, spiritual, religious issues. It's personally distressing, objectively dysfunctional, often accompanied by significant impairment in social, social functioning. Like the church can do this, scrupulosity. Being more about laws than lives rules and regulations, restrictions and requirements than the human soul, programs instead of people. There are even phobias associated with scrupulosity like theophobia, the fear of religion or hierophobia, the fear of pastors and priests. Some of you are feeling like that right now. You're getting hives. Homilophobia, which everybody has, fear of sermons, right? Pecatophobia, the fear of sinning. Poinophobia, the fear of punishment. Stigophobia, the fear of hell. Zeusophobia, the fear of God. These fears can sort of well up inside of you and, and a combination of those things can take you out. Ruth Green put it, very, very well when she said, there's a time when religion ruled the world. There's a reason why it was called the dark ages. When I think of religion, and as I was going through my journal this week, one of the questions was, do you, do you have any certain memories or anything come to mind over your past where 
religion or at the hands of religion, maybe even by good-hearted, good-intentioned people, well-meaning people, you were injured in your spirit. And I was like, oh yeah, I could remember that. One memory just comes flooding back into my mind. I was like nine or 10 years old and I remember my brother and I, we had bunk beds and we got woken up in the middle of the night and my dad brought us downstairs and he, we were on the couch and he was like in the middle and I'm talking three in the morning, woken up, you know, as a kid. And I'm like, what in the world even happened? And it just so happened that it was found out that Tim and I, as well as a bunch of boys in our Christian school uh, had looked at pornography and and in that day, that was like, I think, a man's worst fear of being caught for looking at pornography. And so the, the way that, however the church had come up with this idea is you try to really create a moment, a traumatic moment of fear so that you scare the boys to death so that they never look at pornography ever again for fear of that kind of punishment. And so my dad did this and he was weeping. It was the first time I ever saw my dad weep. And the thing that kept my faith alive, I'll be honest with you, wasn't our church, it was my home. That my mom and dad had come to know Christ in college and just got part of a fundamentalist church that was teaching them. And they were just so open, wanting to follow God, but they had such bleeding hearts for people and they were so real and I loved them. But they were trapped inside of a religious construct that was squeezing them like a boa constrictor. So my dad did this and at the same time, all my friends, I got out of this, but they were taken over to the church building and the deacons were woke, woken up in the middle of the night to come in away from their families to line up like a firing squad in a tribunal and all the boys came in with their dads and the deacon board just, ex just took them to task for this. And the dad sat there idly by as if they didn't know anything about pornography or sexual fantasy or desires that start to inflame you when hormones start kicking in. It was like they knew nothing about this and the leadership didn't, the deacons didn't, the pastor didn't. And I remember what they said, the pastor said, is look what you've done. All these men were home asleep with their families. You've taken them from your families because of what you've done and you've dragged them here. And as a boy, you're just like, <sighs> paralyzed. We kicked out of school for two weeks. Nobody entered into what was going on in our bodies, in our minds, that God created this thing, that lust can take it over, but it has a place and it's a beautiful, nobody came into what was going on or shared, this was my story, how I journeyed through this thing and how I stumbled and fell and how I'm sort of falling or failing forward in my life. I didn't hear anything about that till my sophomore year in college. So from fourth grade all the way to my sophomore year, it was a secret in my mind and it was eating me alive like a disease and what is crazy is that same board of deacons and pastors like one of the deacons was found out like years later to go two towns over to a strip club and lost his whole marriage and he was addicted to sexuality another one uh, was molesting his boys when they were little and he had to go to prison, his own boys. Another one, they, they had a foreign exchange student over and there was an affair with a foreign exchange student and there was a pregnancy in the home and, and they played cover up in the home about what was happening, hid it from everyone and, and their marriage was ruined. Another one, you know, lost his business, shady business practices and, and 
declared bankruptcy and lost everything. And the pastor of the church growing up, the only one I ever knew inside his own house, so we knew nothing about his personal life, he had a son who struggled with homosexuality and he was the same one up there preaching about sodomy and homosexuals and all this stuff, so angry. And it's like in his own home, he's trying to treat his son with love, but he's screaming from the pulpit, just fire and brimstone. And it's like, man, what is the problem? Was anybody going to talk about what was really going on? You, yeah, that, that messed me up. In fact, who I am today is probably as much a result of the baggage and the bruising and the beating of, of my past in certain areas to say, I know what I don't want to be. I know the kind of dad I want to be and don't want to be and leader I want to be and don't want to be. And the times I'm, I'm most like, filled with fear are the times where I feel duplicitous or I feel like I'm being hypocritical and I'm like, God, please, I don't want to be that dad. I, my daughters are here today. I, I never want them to, who is that thing up there and, and does that thing even feel? I don't want them ever to say that about me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I, I I want to put it this way, religion weaponizes fear to control behavior. It focuses on power through manipulation, but Christ awakens desire to change behavior, to transform us. It focuses on empowering through motivation. It's the difference between Jesus and religion. As I was sitting in the coffee shop this week, I, I got to thinking, what are the stories I've heard and that I've been through that could maybe be sitting in that room on Sunday. And I just started thinking of them and writing them down. Maybe some wounds that have happened through these things. Church discipline, where you bring someone up and they have to confess in front of the assembly. It usually was someone who had sex out of wedlock and it, I don't know where the guy was. He was never up there, but the woman was. This young girl was brought up and she had to confess her sins before the people. And I remember just feeling like I, I, something about that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like Jesus' story, those who were without sin cast the first stone, right? Or loss of membership due to divorce or some other disqualification with no plan of restoration. You're just done. Or horrible church business meetings or board meetings filled with disunity and dysfunction. There's even people here that used to be in ministry. There's one last night and they emailed me last night. Long email was in ministry 10 years ago and knew what was behind the curtain in their church. Were so hurt by it. They just never, never would give that calling another chance in their life. And they said last night was the first time I've ever heard anyone even talk about it from the pulpit or you're disfellowshipped or excommunicated, which means just being kicked out of the church and cut off from all church relationships. You usually hear it with the word shunned, where people are literally cast out of their assembly and intentionally left isolated in order to teach them a lesson. And in our circles, it was called hand them over to Satan so that he will maybe bring them to repentance. And that's in the Bible. I just think we, we sort of misunderstand and read into that our own anger. A statement I remember is if you leave, you're out from under the spiritual authority and you lose your spiritual covering. This freaks people out. 
This actually came from the shepherding movement or the covering movement in 1970s. And the main statement or premise of this was we are protected by the authority to which we submit. Unsubmitted, we are unprotected. And so the minute you do something, you just, oh, we're unprotected. Our family is like sitting ducks and we now know have no spiritual leadership, no protection, my kids and my family. We're, we have no protection from the wolves that are gonna eat us. And, and so you stay like a battered wife in a home, a horribly dysfunctional home called a church for years and years and years because of this belief system or hellfire and brimstone teaching or the opposite of that is just watered down preaching and what that does to your vision of God. Or this statement, the narrow road leads to life and few there be that find it. It's like justifying or confirmation bias that the reason why there's so few of us in this church is because we got it right and everyone else has it wrong. And so do you stay there and, and they figure out a way to demonize all the ones where it's growing only because they're appealing to the flesh. Because it says in John 15, all men will hate you because of me. If they hated me, they're gonna hate you too because no servant is greater than his master. And it's like, if I'm hated, I must be a really great Christian. I wanted to say so many times growing up, you're hated because you're a jerk. <laughs> it's one thing to like be like hated because someone just literally hates you for, for being the right person or doing the right thing. But being hated because you're an obnoxious, noxious jerk, that's not Jesus' fault. Or this was a statement, you didn't have enough faith, you, you must have sin in your life or God would have answered that prayer, how many people have died and God's the one that's thrown under the bus or you just didn't have enough faith or did I have enough faith, why, not? why don't I have enough faith or am I not praying with enough faith and it just kills you. Personal secrets you've shared in confidentiality that are spread to others in the church, sometimes it's prayer requests. A few people who gave the most money had all the power and control of the pastor in the church? You ever been a part of one of those places? Conjured emotionalism that proved to be put on or fake and it's just wacky and trippy and you just don't get it and you can tell there's a falsehood about it and a guile about it. Boring ritualism or detached liturgy without any personal connection or application to your life and it just kind of strikes you as like, man, God's not with it. He just isn't relevant. He's old-fashioned. He can't keep up with the speed of life. Or cover up in leadership that leads to moral failure. Some of you have been let down by leaders that have been on a pedestal and then they hid and then it all came out and it just crushed your heart. Maybe the worst wound of all is God told me by some member in the church or even a pastor, like God told me last night that our church is not supposed to do this anymore and we're gonna do this and we're going this direction and you can't argue when somebody, God told me to tell you and I'm gonna have a word for you and a prophecy over you and you, you can't even contend with it because God told them. You know what I'm sensitive with and I just wanna teach you this rather than God told me and he said for me to say to you, it's just like I sense this in my spirit and I could be wrong. I could have eaten bad, bad beef last night, you know? <laughs> But I sense this in my spirit, and I wanna share this with you. If it doesn't land right, it, it could be on me. I just care about you. But I sense this in my spirit. Because I've never audibly been told anything by God to tell anybody else, but I have sensed his spirit leading my heart to talk to somebody. And with humility, just saying, I just wanna, I just wanna share this, but it could be me. I love that, Luke 13, 17, Jesus says this, and all his opponents are humiliated, but people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. There's a grid I came up with several years ago, and I think it's good for religion 
because we wanna move from religion to a relationship with God and it was duty and it was discipline and it was desire and then it was delight. The word delight kind of triggered this and I had to go find where it was. And, and I think religion starts with you, you, you have to. And discipline is I need to. Like I need to lift weights, but I don't want to. But it's discipline, right? And, and duty and discipline aren't always bad. It's a great place to start. But you don't want your religion or your relationship with your wife or anything in your life to stay I have to or I need to. You want to get to I want to and I love to, which is desire and delight. This is where Jesus wants us to go, to a place where I have to, to I need to, to I want to, to I love to happens with people. Like, I have to love you, John. I'm looking at the teacher of my children, right? I, I have to love you. I need to love you. God has told me I need to love you. And by discipline, I'm really, really struggling. And I am going to muster all of my energy to try to love you, John Bynaman. I don't know if it's Bynaman, Bynaman, or Bynaman, but that. <laughs> But it starts feeling way more humane when it's, I really want to have you over to my house and I loved having a conversation with you. This whole idea of I'm supposed to because God told me I had to, it just has got, that is not what moves the hearts of people. And I just would, I have two pages that I'm not gonna get to, but I'm, is it really 1119? It's actually 11.20. If, if I leave you right here, I will have done, done a disservice because all I've done is define the cage in some ways. But, but I will not have led you to turn the page. And I'm gonna tell you right now that you might be sitting there like, well, this church has hurt me. You've hurt me. Me. And if, and if I've hurt you, I am so sorry. It could have been conscious, it was probably unconsciously, but we're gonna be hurt by each other. Things that are said or not said, done or not done, by omission or commission, we're gonna hurt each other in this place. This place is probably going to hurt you if it hasn't already, because we're imperfect human beings. I want you to know, you've hurt me. This church has hurt me. The emails that I get, the criticism that I feel, the way that I am grossly you know, misinterpreted or, or things that are spread about me in the community that I hear. And ever since this building's been built, I've been excoriated. I've been eviscerated with just angry emails. I cannot believe the church. It's crazy. But you know what? I gotta say, those 5% or 10% are not going to eclipse and trump the 90% the church has saved my life. This community, I love this community. I gotta turn the page and not fixate on the one or two people that hurt me and all the hundreds of people that love me and that I love them. And I even love the people that hurt me because Christ said, love your enemies, not just your neighbors. Because he was radical like that. I, I I'm just telling you, we've got to say, I have been the perpetrator and the victim myself. And, and the cool thing about Jesus is he was coming to save the predator and the prey. 
And we've all been the predator and the prey of spiritual abuse. And we have to say to ourselves, I got to turn the page on that. I got to say, God, come in. Give me a shower. Cleanse me. Make me the kind of person that moves up that ladder from I have to, to I need to, to I want to, to I love to, and allow that to gush out onto other people so that we aren't in this passage in Luke 13 being just completely in tunnel vision and trapped in religion. We just don't see the desperate need and we don't see the person. We don't feel the pain anymore. We don't free people. We enslave them. So I'm, I'm just sorry for whatever's happened in your life. Just if I could even take on that sort of substitutionary atonement place, I, I don't know that I can, but I just wanna somehow atone for that by saying as a spiritual leader, I am very cognizant and conscious that you've been hurt by the church along the way and it has completely contaminated your vision of God, but God loves you. The church is broken. Even well-meaning people can hurt you, myself included. But we gotta turn the page and say, God, I wanna be like you, Jesus. I want you to heal me and I wanna go about the business of healing others because freed people free people. God, I don't know if I did all this right, but I just wanted your heart to come out for who you really are and who you feel we really are. And I just want you to transform individuals in our church collectively in this place so that we can represent you in a, in a way that is accurate and passionate and intimate to bring that back to the church. So help us, Lord, say that man who is crying out, beating his chest, have mercy on us. Oh God, for we are sinners. And you're drawn to that humble posture and that spirit. And I pray that you'd help us to heal as we forgive, as you forgave. Just like you did to your oppressors on the cross, one of the most powerful prayers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we could just say that about our, our past experiences, Father, forgive them. They didn't really know what they were doing when they were doing it, but you've healed me and just to offer that forgiveness and find that freedom. I pray that I haven't in some way just stirred up the stink in someone's life or in, in some way created more anxiety and, and done what you've said where I put heavy burdens on people and have done nothing to lift a finger to help them, but I pray that they feel your spirit of help coming in, rushing in, rescuing them right now. Spirit, just come in and and flood their hearts with your healing balm. I thank you for your word and I thank you for these contexts to come together that we even today as the church can talk about the church and what the church has done to wound us and not be afraid. We're not afraid of you. We don't have to be afraid of truth. We can trust the truth. So we lean toward you today we want to turn the page and leave the cage so that for the remainder of our life, we can live with a quality of life that changes one life at a time. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Love you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.